Fun with Failure is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hi, welcome to Fun with Failure, a podcast where we laugh with and at you about your flaws, fears, and failures. I'm your host, Dr. Alexis Carrero. Let's have some fun. Our guest today is Jeff Dugdale. Jeff is a six-time NCAA Division II Coach of the Year and is in his ninth year in charge of Queen's University of Charlotte men and women's swimming programs. The Royals have won the previous five NCAA Division II National Championships for both the men and women and have finished among the top 10 every year since 2012-2013. The Queen's University Royals have rewritten NCAA record books under Dugdale's leadership, currently holding 23 NCAA Division II individual and relay records. In his nine years at the helm of Queen's program, his teams have produced 72 individual national champions, 410 NCAA All-Americans, and six NCAA Swimmers of the Year. In addition to working at Queen's, the summer of 2012, Dugdale started as the director of high performance for SwimMac Team Elite. There he assisted head coach David Marsh in placing five athletes on the U.S. Olympic team that returned to Charlotte with three gold medals and three silver medals. Through the 2016 Olympics, they qualified 11 athletes for the Olympics and won 14 medals for the USA. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. What is the most fun you've ever had at failing? Probably the most fun, if we were to say it, and, and again, would be the Olympic Games. Um, it's, it's, or the Olympic trials, I should say, back up, because you go and you work so hard. And um, I'll give you an example. We had a young man uh, who... In if you're going to make the Olympic team, there's really no easy way to do it. But if there were, if you were to put the word easy somewhere within those trial aspects, it would be on a relay where they take six versus four. So we had a young man where like, oh my gosh, he's one of the, all year. He's one of the top three in the, um, in, in the world, let alone in the U.S. All you got to do be, there's eight lanes. You just got to be two people. Well, you got seventh. Oh. And in your, we're sitting there going, oh my gosh, he didn't make the Olympic team for the third time. And we're like, I, how does this happen? And he was at home. He left the meet and he went home. Uh, again, a slight depression right after you, um, you don't make the Olympic team for the third time. And then, um, and then Michael Phelps um, scratches the 200 freestyle to focus on his uh, 200, um, on the 200 fly and different uh, events. And he gets called in. But I mean, he went through the wider um, emotions of failure, sitting at home, eating pizza and probably some Burger King, and then um, getting a phone call to say, get back. You're now on the Olympic team, which he ended up winning gold on the 800 free relay. But we laughed wow. because his, in fact, I should have brought this, his picture in my office shows him wearing the gold medal and says, sometimes failing actually wins. Wow. That's <laughs> so, crazy. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. We laughed, we cried, we had the whole range of emotions in one event. But my point to this whole thing is in the Olympic trials, it, it's you prepare for four years. There's no instant self-gratification throughout the process. And in this process, then you get to the event and you miss it. And it comes down to hundreds of tenths of seconds. 
And then what happens is it's done. Yeah. And you can't say try again next year or try again in a month. It's four years later. Will you be able to financially support yourself to stay around to do it? So, yeah, that's crazy. So I guess the fun in that is it's a whole process. It's um, Everybody understands because there's 1,500 to 2,000 people at the trials and only 36 men and women between the two basically make the team. So... Well, thank you, Michael Phelps. (laughs) Yeah, right? Thank you. Thank you, Michael Phelps. So maybe that's the question that you just answered. So I was going to ask, what is your favorite failure of someone else's? Is that your favorite failure of someone else's or what about? Well, no, I do have another favorite failure of someone else's is I can't help but to think sometimes what would have changed in our direction at Queens in going on to win a national championship if this failure didn't occur. So in 2014, our men's program, our women were a solid third, so they were going to win their first championship, and they could clearly see then what first would look like. But the men, and you only win a trophy one through four, the men were fifth, and the meet came down to the last relay. There was no way we were going to win a trophy unless somebody disqualified, and it was specifically another team called named Bridgeport. And I saw their coach telling his swimmers, we got a trophy. Don't jump or false start. Oh, no. And I told my assistant, I said, he just told them don't. And I said, that is the kiss of death in our in our sport on relays to disqualify. And he goes, well, there's no way they'll do that. I mean, it's they're not trying for a record. They're not trying for any. All they have to do is be safe. Well, they jumped. Oh. And we got fourth. And we came. And that changed that trophy definitely showed our men where they want to go next. But without that trophy, I still think we could have done well, but I can't help but to think without that failure of that of that team, unfortunately, their failure was our benefit. We'd then leap them, we'd get fourth place, bring home a trophy. What would have been different? Yeah. And sports is so interesting in that right way because, yeah, one person wins or one team wins and one team fails. And so it's sort of that tug of war, that yin yang, that seesaw, it's back and forth all the time. Right. Well, even watching basketball, I mean, you're sitting there going, I mean, you find yourself cheering against somebody like, don't make it, don't make it, don't make it. And it's like, wow, you're, you're, you're wanting them to fail in order for you to move to the next level. Yeah. Failure is absolutely bedded, bedded, embedded and baked into sports at every level. So I'm sure we're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, what's your favorite embarrassing story to tell about yourself? <laughs> well, I think my uh, favorite is more when I was younger in the fact that um, there's wardrobe malfunctions Got all it. the time. And uh, so in the suits that we wore on uh, how tight they were, or we wore these parkas in which you would change, um, you would take your suit off right after. And then you wore these long jackets to be able to put your suit, keep warm, and then put your suit back on. Well, um, I had definitely remembered to put my suit back on, but I did not know that in the haste of doing that, that it had ripped. And so there was um, there was definitely some embarrassment and failure when I'm standing on the blocks and and it wasn't terrible. It was not everything was sticking out on the back, but it was enough. And luckily it was when I was younger. 
Um, it was like a crescent moon, not a full moon. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. It okay. was. Um, it was not the super moons that we've been experiencing. <laughs> Fair but um, but it was it was an embarrassing thing as I was trying to figure out. People were yelling my name, and I'm like, "Quiet, we're getting ready to start the race." And you're like, "Yeah, I'm yeah. awesome." Like, yeah, Meanwhile, so. your butt crack is out there. Oh yeah, but I mean, I could feel a breeze, but I just thought it was it was um, it was okay. But so I had to do a quick change and uh, get moving on. But uh, that was probably my most embarrassing. Did you win? I, you know what? I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. I, like, that that kind of gets blocked out until you until it's um until it's brought up again. So yeah, I don't remember where where I was in that race. Well, it also shows how focused you were on just the race itself. Oh. Yeah, there. It's it's pretty funny, um, especially watching little kids and swimming. Uh, to have this type of interview if with some of the parents is I've watched little kids go up, stand on the block and just start peeing. And, Aww. uh, but they're as if nobody can see them. And then, <laughs> and, and then, and then they're, when they're done, they're like, okay, I'm ready. And it's like, I mean, there's crowds, there's everybody and they're real tiny and they're cute and they're adorable. Oh and they're sitting there going, what's just happening right here? But uh, it's pretty funny. Is that for, do little boys and little girls do it or is it mainly little boys? I've just seen little boys. There I always remind everybody, little boys, even in college, our women do so well in their academics. I always remind everybody before I give their GPA and they're, they're good. They're very solid. But I always say, remember their frontal lobes do not develop fully until 25. So <laughs> yeah, they have a built-in biological excuse. Yeah. I still haven't figured out why women don't rule the world, but that's a conversation for another day. I have two daughters and I believe that to be, I, I do believe that that should happen. We're going to take a quick break to thank our awesome sponsors. But when we return, I want to learn more about your personal and professional story and what role failure has played in getting you to where you are today. So stay tuned. Soreness and pain isn't always the result of activity. This is a 60-second wellness tip powered by Ortho Carolina. Prolonged sitting in a car or at your job aggravates muscles and joints and can cause pain. A standing desk can help. The key to alleviating the discomfort that sitting can cause is changing positions more frequently during the day. Alternating between sitting and standing at your desk, in addition to taking walk breaks and stretching, can work to loosen those tight muscles and joints. The perfect standing desk should be high enough so your computer keyboard is at elbow level and your monitor at face level to avoid neck strain. Before you start standing at your desk, take into consideration any knee or foot injuries and wear flat, comfortable shoes. This has been your 60-second wellness tip, powered by Ortho Carolina, official team physicians of the Carolina Panthers and proud sponsor of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more tips or to make an appointment, visit orthocarolina.com. Admit it, staying informed is hard. There's so much information, it's hard to find content that speaks right to you. And local radio has left Charlotte behind. What if there was one place where you could find news, entertainment, sports, music, food, and comedy created in and all about the place you call home? You're listening to the Charlotte Newsmakers Podcast. The Charlotte Podcast. This is John. And this is Miller. There's good all around us. Let's hear about it. Welcome to Do Good Charlotte, the Yelp Charlotte Podcast. 
Welcome to Fun with Failure. This is your man, Colin Cole, and I'm bringing to you the Players Report. Welcome to the Comedy Zone Podcast. All right, we're back with Prime After Prime. The Advent Coworking Podcast. 1K, the 1,000 second podcast. Another episode of Cheers, Charlotte. Thanks for being with us. My name's Brian LaFontaine. This is You May Have Seen. This is the Queen City Podcast Network. Powered by Ortho Carolina. Changing the way Charlotte listens at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. At what age did you start swimming? I started swimming at four and a half uh, because I was used as a prop uh, with all my neighbors and my sister, six years older than me, and imagine everybody six years older. And at four and a half, they would throw me in the water and see if I could get out of the water before they would get me. And so, that's horrible. Uh, yeah, that well, exactly. Really Sometimes that's how you get good is you have to fend for your life. And so, so um, it was survival. Basically. So it was a survival okay. instinct. It was fight or flight, and it was repeated many times um, throughout a um, evening workout at them and. Uh, and so that's that's where I got my beginnings at about four and a half years old. And I never took a break after that for longer than two weeks until I retired at 20. So what was it? How did, how did you go from survival mode, being chased and or dunked and or drowned by a loving sibling to then competing and realizing that you loved it and that you were good at it? Yeah. So it, it's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting question in the fact that uh, I think you just need encouragement when somebody says you're pretty good at that, or they start to say, we can go, we can throw him in, um, a little bit further because he's getting <laughs> to the wall pretty fast as you start to develop a talent. But because of my height and because of my stature and Nate, um, just how fast I grew, I was always bigger than everyone else at that age. So I, um, I'd want to please and I would want to go and um, do things with the older kids. And um, so if you were going to be accepted, you had to, you couldn't be the low man on the totem pole. So I, I just made it a, I made it a effort to really try and fit in. The other thing for me was I had some weird personal goals. Um, I wanted to know one of my personal goals was I want to know everybody in the town. And I don't know why I can't explain that, but how old were you when you had this goal? Yeah, I would say I was probably anywhere from um, about 12, 12. To, um, and I just wanted to know everybody. I was a very, I'm a very a social person. And, um, and it explains now when I take personality tests, my number one thing is wow and strength finders and, and our woo, I'm sorry, woo. And, um, and, uh, so what happened was I had to change the rules. And this is where I turn, turned my swimming career into where I, I knew I was going to probably get a scholarship and, and get and let it pay for my education is for, um, I had to change the rules. There was obvious, it became obvious, right? That I wasn't going to meet everybody in our town, which was pretty big. So I changed the rules. I said, if I got better in swimming and I was in the papers every weekend and they recognized my, when they saw me, they say, Hey, you're that kid that's in the papers yeah. as a swimmer that counted as them knowing. So I increased my population Got it. through using my sport. So it was through eyeballs that you were getting to know people, not just face to face. Right. I'm just picturing little Jeff Dugdale, mayor of Kenosha. <laughs> that was my nickname, the mayor. Really? Yeah, that yeah, was my nickname, even through college, <laughs> is that funny. I want, is that I, I always, I just, uh, for some reason, my favorite place is an airport. 
I mean, I just Still, love today. it today. Today, I could I go to the airport two and a half, three hours early just so I can sit and watch. Oh, I love it. And That's meet great. people. And I usually one of our goals is um, is uh, wearing identifiable products. So shirt that says Queens or I went to Auburn or from Wisconsin, so that people all of a sudden it is my goal. If I I will have failed if I walk through an airport or multiple airports in a trip. And no one says, um, recognizes or says, Hey, um, where are you from? Or I know it's just, it's a failure if I've not, um, been called out by name or I recognize someone or we, um, we can strike up a conversation and, and because I also have relator in me just because I meet you once you're probably, you're my best friend. Yeah. So I know you. Yeah. Well, that's kind of how it was with us when we met. We met at Queens oh, yeah. and it was like instantaneous. And then from there, it was like, okay, we're friends now. Yeah, that's exactly. All. We're friends. Yeah. And somebody can talk to me and say, hey, um, I need it. And I'll be like, I have a friend who can help. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. Wow. So when you see, when you're at an airport or somewhere and you see someone wearing Auburn, will you go up to them? And- I'll say War Eagle. Nice. So I had funny. I um, Not too long ago, I was in the airport and uh, I had a little kid. I was on the phone. And I had a little kid that was playing right in front of me. And um, and the mom came to get the little kid. And I said, Krista? And she goes, what? And, and then I forgot. She had married another swimmer I coached at Duke, Andrew. And they're sitting right in the airport right next to me. Well, that's great. With, I mean, it is so funny. So, yeah, we can. I can usually get through. And somebody will yell, War Eagle. Or somebody will say, hey, didn't you... Yeah. Um, blank or we can wear our championship rings and we'll create a conversation yeah you're i want to take a picture of that ring because that ring is bananas i feel like i'm looking at a super bowl ring that thing is huge well and because of my size i can usually um somebody will say is that a super bowl ring and i'll tell yeah. them no i was too small to play football <laughs> and uh and then they laugh and then we talk about how it was swimming and uh it's pretty funny tell me a little bit about your Early years, what were your fir- what was your first job? You said you stopped swimming. Yeah, let's start there. Why did you stop swimming at twenty? Well, in injury. Um, well, I was actually um, my mentor, Coach David Marsh, who was the two thousand sixteen Olympic coach. Um, he was coming into Auburn at that time, and uh, we weren't that good. And um, the coach had quit, and uh, we were at the bottom of the Southeastern Conference. Florida was at the top, and. Uh, he, after spending time with the team, he, he approached me and asked me if I would become his assistant coach and a recruiting coordinator. He goes, you get it. And uh, people were transferring left and right because he gave them the opportunity, knowing that they came for a different reason and he wanted to move up, uh, move to a different level. That's always a difficult transition for a coach and for um, the athletes during a change. And so as he hired his staff and brought me in as uh, the re- one of the as a recruiting coordinator and to help him in this process in understanding the Auburn way, that we um, that's I had to make a decision. I had to either move again, and I felt I was prepared for this for my because my younger years with my sister being six years older, I now had to gravitate and towards the adult, and I had to start adulting, or I could stay with the my peers and continue to do what we were doing there. And I chose, I want to move towards the adult. So it was a natural transition for me. And, um, and I could, and we were, and went on and successfully recruited our first national championship team, uh, our conference championship team four years later and our national team, our first national championship in 1997. 
um, one of 12 for them. 13 total, 12 with David. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know because I, um, I didn't know that you and David had gone back that far. Yeah. We're from the ni- 1990. Oh, the, that's called the olden days. Well, that's when he hand delivered. He asked me when I told him I would join his staff, he asked me to put my arms out. And he loaded me up with cassette tapes, which most people listening to this won't know. <laughs> Adorable. And uh, with Zig Ziglar um, cassette tapes yeah. and said, don't come back until you listen to all these. So I know that a loaf of bread has two beginnings. <laughs> I know that it, um, when you wake up, you wake up to an opportunity clock, not an alarm clock. Oh, and classic. Yeah. Classic yeah. Zig. Yep. Nice. So after, I know that you had... Or you were in corporate for a while. So how did you transition from swimming and working with David and then into corporate? So what was the, how did this all happen? How did it play yeah, out? Yeah, so I went, it's um, a classic uh, case of uh, I was at a wedding and um, of one of our coaches that I coached with and I met, his wife was a doctor or is a doctor and um, her nurses came and I met, um, I met, uh, one of her nurses and, uh, then got in order to start a relationship to eventually thinking that this was going to be the person you marry. I had to move, um, from there to Raleigh Durham to, uh, to get to know and and start to develop that process. So it was tough. Um, I left, I left Auburn at that point to, to follow a, a woman and then um, we got married, and 18 months later after that, got married and married 21 years. But um, that's how I started my process in getting into pharmaceuticals. I went to Auburn to be in pre-med and um, fell in love with kind of the marketing sales aspect of coaching, recruiting. So started to learn more on the, um, like, more, I would say more, I would have thrived probably more in a skill like um college i mean because i started recognizing that when i when i was told or asked to do something that if i got to figure it out myself and go out and use real life experience i could learn a lot more yeah and that really polished even my networking skills as well so so then i moved into corporate and had um had a 13 year run with GlaxoSmithKline and um, sec- at that time, second largest pharmaceutical company. And I watched the evolution of that. When I started, it was cool to play golf and do the different things with physicians. And then we, it started evolving where they, um, the, the perception was that drug prices were going up because of the mar- um, marketing and they were kind of forgetting the research and development part. <laughs> and, um, and so that started to change. And um, I mean, I, when I left pharmaceuticals, I was, I was thriving. I was loving it. But um, David left Auburn at that time and came to Charlotte. He said, I want to do something crazy. I want to, um, very similar um, to what you're doing and branching out and how you're thriving. It says, I'm going to leave college and lots of success and let's, um, let's start a professional team. And, and you sit there and you think, boy, how irresponsible would it be for me to leave a high paying corporate pharmaceutical position in which I had the great opportunity to kind of travel between um, uh, RTP and Philadelphia and experience a lot of great people. And, uh, and basically um, we did it. And so he says, let's get the band together. Let's um, and so to make us feel better, our family feel better. We kind of said this would be our mission work. So that we could go and um, start over, try to get rid of all our debt, 
and um, and start over and try try to make an impact on people's lives at a a different level and really with a with a theme of a patriotic theme that we would help increase the medal count with the USA at the Olympic Games. And it wasn't too much of a stretch for me because in corporate, I was kind of, I was coaching as well. So coaching was a kind of that thing. And so it wasn't, um, so we decided and we moved to Davidson, North Carolina to start that. And in trying to find some infrastructure, we ran into Pamela Davies, Dr. Davies, and she said, uh, President of President Davies, President of yeah, Queens University. Yeah. And she, um, and she said, we'd like to start a swim team here and we'd like to host your group. Um, but if we can kind of do it and package it all together. So we were kind of the consultant for that. Yeah. And then it developed into, she said, I think we've got the funding for a new pool and everything. And then it was like, well, you know what, this is pretty interesting. I'll help find you a coach. And then when the coach that we tried to introduce to them didn't, didn't want to really start over with a program. I felt bad that that didn't work out. And uh, so they said, would you be interested in taking the position? I said, yeah, I'll oversee the building of the pool and then we'll go from there and get the program started and see how we evolve. If you like me, great. If you don't. And then I fell in love with the school. Yeah. And uh, it's a, it's a really special. It's, it's a really special place. Yeah, it is. Tell me about the pool and the building of the pool, because I know that there have been articles written about this and published and it's gotten a lot of attention. So, and it's really fascinating to think through and to have one of the people here who has helped designed it. So yeah. what is it about the space and the pool at Queens that makes it so special? Well, yeah, we, in fact, we just were labeled the ultimate pool because when we built the pool, label you were labeled by who as the by, yeah. Pool? So there's a there's it's called the Ultimate Pool Conference and um, Paddock Pools, which builds pools and brings in over 200 to 300 people um, every other year. Um, and contractors they they try to look at an in an industry best. And so we were labeled the ultimate pool by standards of which we are now going to and we have been and we're going to continue going to. Um, uh, Washington, D.C., we've met with senators. We're on the Hill. Uh, there's, from what I understand, we've met with the EPA, OSHA, and um, we're also, there's going to be a um, hearing um, for us to testify in to be able to set the standard going forward on air quality um, that, we, that we've developed um, for sake of, for health purposes. So when we built our pool, we built it in kind of what I call the Queen's Way, set by <laughs> President Davies with an experience in mind. So what happens in a building process is that you you have this dream and, and they accommodate you with the dream. They will let you talk and dream of what you want um, for a long time. And you'll you'll go through this whole process and and it's it's pretty, it's it really builds you up and feels great. And then then they introduce this thing that if you don't know building, it um it uh, really um, is kind of where I would put in the same category of feeling with failure or kryptonite is they introduce this thing that sounds really cool, but it's not, it's called value engineering. And in value engineering, they take your dream and start to pick it apart because of um, where it falls in the money um, stake. But the one thing we said, and I was shocked to have this support was we are not going to sacrifice the experience. We are going to make sure we have the best air quality around so that the the participants, the level of athletes that we wanted to have training there 
would have the best experience. The college athletes would have that. The student body would have that experience and the spectators that would come and and, uh, watch and the faculty and staff. So we built in what we call a source capture right into the gutters, which was an invention by Paddock and we were one of the first pools to have it was we take the chloramines right off the surface of the water so that you don't get that irritant that causes the red eyes, the scratching, the um, coughing, the horse, all the different things that um, happens in a pool area. So every 15 minutes we circulate fresh air without the chloramine or the chlorine smell. So most people that come into our onto our property or into the Levine Center don't even smell where the pool is where if you walk into any other building you would know where to get to the pool you follow you use your nose to follow it so yeah if anyone has ever walked into an indoor pool and just been hit with that chlorine that chemical chlorine smell you don't get that when you walk into the pool at queens it's so it yeah it smells good it feels good the air is great and that process, we've been able to eliminate, practically eliminate our inhaler use from our kids, wow. um, from our student athletes. So it's, it's, it's been so remarkable that it has, we've been able and blessed with going to Washington, D.C. to be able to share our story. Um, yeah. And it's always interesting. With the EPA, it works really well. With OSHA, they said they're not interested because they really don't get involved until too many people get hurt or die. Oh, and we're fun. like, we're trying to avoid that. And they're like, well, come to us if it doesn't work. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I hope that we don't ever have to come to you then. Yeah, my goal in life is to have my own pool. Oh, good. So, um, in fact, I'm thinking about, I'm also looking for a sponsor for the podcast. The section will be called Mommy Needs a Pool. That's right. So if Paddock Pools wants to sponsor a podcast, you let me know. There we go. Because mommy needs a pool. That's right. So, okay. So back to your process. So you come to Charlotte. You're working with David. You're, he, he's launching Swim Mac Elite here in Charlotte, which is that the goal is to get people to the Olympics and to really focus on that. It was that part of the goal. Well, the goal wasn't. This is, I think, what made us different, both in collegiate and in our in our profession in the professional program, is we took a different approach. We didn't want anybody who just wanted to make the Olympics. We okay. started with people who want to win gold, and then that making the Olympics was part of the process. So we kind of redefined the whole goal process um, and how we were going to um, attract people. Is don't even bother coming to us if you're not interested in winning a gold. Any medal at the Olympics, silver, bronze, and gold is is counts and is towards our medal count. But the gold is where we wanted to start. That's where you you don't you don't start thinking I want to win silver. Yeah, yeah. it's you start at gold and then you're blessed with either you know you get into the race. But um, that's that's where we started. And one of the reasons why we chose Charlotte was because of the banking industry and the different things. We wanted to also redefine how we could take these post. Um, graduate athletes and help them start to develop and nurture them in the job market as well and start to find companies that would support their efforts and help them and pay them so they could do this and then be able to, with their loyalty, be rewarded that when after the Olympics, they could come to work full time and move on with their life. Yeah. So that was our goal. How has failure been a part of your success and at Queens University and the team success. I mean, as as a coach, failure is 
baked into sports. You win some, you lose some. You don't win every single time. Right. So how do you work with failure as a coach and how do you use the students and the swimmers' failures to then inspire them towards success? Yeah, well, I think failure is part of the learning process. And this is why I'm so against every kid gets a trophy. And because what happens, and I work with an author named Ashley Merriman who wrote the book uh, Top Dog and Nurture Shock. And um, one of the things is is that with failure is um, part of the key component in failing is when someone comes up to you and say, why? Why did I fail or why did it not go? And then the whole storytelling or explanation or the accepting of responsibility or the the question I give to the kids or to our student athletes are, and our professionals are knowing what you knew, what knowing what you know now, what would you have done different? And a lot of them come back and say, I would have eaten better. I would have gotten more sleep. I wouldn't have bought into this whole, uh, this is the way a college student athlete should yeah, be. And yeah. we'll stay up all night and try to do this. And I wouldn't have drank so much. I would have taken better care of my body. I would have recovered. I, you, the list goes on, right? Yeah. So then I say, now we can start to make progress. Because now you know this and we can, how do you avoid this um, failure? I kind of have this um, saying that only a jackass stumbles twice over the same stone. <laughs> so how do we now um, do this? But here's what happens. I, I, I hope I'm not jumping around too much. With every kid getting a trophy, you don't, that story doesn't make sense anymore. Because yeah. what happens is if you turn around, I remember crying with my mom and saying, hey, um, how do I win that trophy? How do I get that trophy? And um, she would say, why don't you go ask them? Why don't the person holding the trophy? But now you have that same statement when they come up to you and my daughters, both my daughters were athletes or are athletes. And, and, um, and, and I can't say that because if they turn around, everyone has, is holding the trophy. Mm -hmm. so, so what is it that um, we learn is, is from failure is we learn to share best practices. Well, I got up early in every morning. I trained every time. I did every practice for two hours, but that's the limit, right? I'm for college athletes. It's 20 hours a week, four hours a day. Well, that's great. Well, if everybody's doing the exact same thing, well, then you should accept, you should expect the exact same results. So great athletes, great kids. And what we learn from failures, what do I do? I ask for more or I don't ask for less or do I stay three minutes later than everybody else? And will that add up over a year to give me better results? You can't get that if everybody has a trophy and you can't get that if you don't learn from failure. So failure, that's how it helps us. Failure gives us is our roadmap and how to how to move um, move forward, how to be better, how to um, avoid pitfalls. Otherwise, we'd find ourselves in a in a constant, a dog chasing its tail thing. I, I say it's a little bit about history. This is why I'm a huge history fan, because if you don't know your history, you're bound to re um, repeat it. So it's ironic for me to be talking to you this week about failure, because wasn't it just last week that you won the fifth NCAA Division II National Championship for both men and women? Yes. Yeah. So last week, this you know announcement goes out and Queens won fifth year in a row, right? And I call up Jeff. Hey, Jeff, you want to be on the podcast about fail failure? <laughs> Basically, like, congratulations. Congra congratulations. Let's talk about something else now. 
But what does that mean for you? I mean, that is such a huge accomplishment and coach of the year multiple times for both the men and the women's teams. So how much experience do you, I mean, you really haven't had that much experience in the last several years with failure in this regard. So how do you think you will feel when this winning streak comes to an end? How are you going to deal with that? Yeah, it's... um. You know, sometimes some people ask me what what keeps you up at night, and I, I have to be very honest and transparent. Is um, what what will happen if if we don't win our first um, when we lose the first time? And the way I try, uh, I try to play games with myself. I try to put it in the fact that we're never trying to defend a championship. Um, we're never trying to um, repeat. We're never trying to continue a streak. What we're trying to do is every year with different people is try to put ourselves in a position that will win a championship. And uh, it's we won different in a different way every year. Um, so that's been fun. But the one thing that um, that I tell our student athletes and try to even tell our coaching staff, we can only control what we can control. I can't control somebody else recruiting a better team. I can't control somebody developing or a swimmer coming out of nowhere and being the X factor to score points that would beat us. But the thing that keeps me up at night is the way our audience will react. And so um, I, I fear, <laughs> I fear that the first time that we don't win, when somebody says what happened, how I'll react, and if it will be a defense mechanism if it will be a protection mode of our student athletes, um, what will it be like? Um, will that let down or, I mean, and I'm trying more to protect them on how to handle and be good sportsmen and how to know that they've done everything they could. So whatever, if whatever happens, happens that they, should we not be on top, that they will still know that they gave it their best and that what we ended up whatever place we ended up in, it was what we earned because of where we were. And that's what we could control. And that's, I'm, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying to prepare for it. And at the same time, I have a, the other half that's um, constantly fighting, evaluating, looking at numbers, trying to say, how do we continue to recruit people that will <laughs> keep us at where we are? So it's, um, it's a struggle. It's a and it, it was not something that I've always thought about until you actually take over a program. And, and it's what's interesting is the chase is always so fun. Yeah. It's then the um, it's the once you start doing it and then the target and then everybody that was your friend and that really liked you, they um, they thought in the beginning it was cute. And they, um, when we won our first time, it was, wow, finally someone upset somebody else who was that. And then now I remind everybody that those whispers that you had in your ear that says, I hope you do it. I great job. I'm pulling for you that now they're doing that to other people. <laughs> and, yeah. and because it's, um, it's the reason I, and I tell my team this, we have to be sharp and we have very little room for failure, um, or mistakes, even though they're going to happen. Like this year, we lost one of our first meets to a team that, that we thought would upset us and they ended up getting third. But I say that's the reason diamonds exist. And they always ask me and say, what do you mean? And I say, because diamonds exist because they don't grow old on the eye because light creates so many colors. But why most people don't put a 
a wedding ring on that's an opal or a specific color is because you'll become bored with that color, that one color. So you have to constantly stay sharp and be like a diamond and shine in a different way. Otherwise, people start to grow old with the people who are winning all the time and start to say, well, you see it with the Patriots. Oh, I so badly want another team to beat them <laughs> or in basketball, et cetera. Yeah. So. Yeah. You talked about how the chase is so fun, except now you're being chased. Oh, yeah. We and there are and this is what I try to tell them as well. There are and this is what I appreciate and love about the sport, about sport in general, is that there are very talented kids that we're recruiting that will be very honest with me, which I thank them profusely, is that they would rather go to another team, even though they know our team would be the best to be be able to get reach their goals, but they're wired to help want to help upset somebody. Yeah. And I love that. I love that. And that's why I say we can only control what we can control. Because if all of a sudden you get five of those people on another team, we're in trouble. Yeah, that are gu- <laughs> that are gunning for you specifically. Yeah. yeah. And if they want to be that type of leadership and define themselves as having over to um to take down somebody. That's that's to be commended. And then our job, like in any chess game, is to try and combat that. Right. Yeah, that's part of the fun. Yeah, that's that's, that's the strategy. That's the push and pull. Yeah. How do you think your students, if they had to describe you in three words, how do you think your student athletes would describe you? Wow. For the first time, I'm I'm kind of uh, that that kind of um, it causes me to take pause. I, I hope that they would describe me as um, loving, um, nurturing, but tough. Um, is I, I kind of have this thing when they leave, when they leave Queens. If I've done my job, I'll only score between an eighty-eight to ninety-two on my um, evaluation because trying to get the most out of someone is going to sting and hurt. Yeah. But when three years later in the real world that they'll, I'll get 100% because they'll know what I did for them was what was best for them. And I see that with our alumni traveling all over. We had, I think, 80 to 100 people cheering for us. And we had a lot of our alumni travel all the way from Arizona State, from leave at 3 in the morning from Charlotte to get to Indianapolis to cheer for us. And so I see our alumni thriving out there in the work world. And, uh, but I also in doing great things like being doctors in sales, um, therapists, um, doing all kinds of things that are making me proud. But I know that when we, when they swam, I was pretty tough because I was trying to get something out of them that they didn't even know existed yet. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, that's what I would, I hope, I hope they see. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you or any stories that you have about flaws fears, failures that you want to share or that you think people might be interested in hearing? Well, you know, I have experienced a lot of success in the sports world, but I've also gone through the failure of a marriage and I've gone through, um, you know, I've gone through failure in other parts of my life that, um, knowing it's a short life that I, you know, sometimes I've asked myself, uh, if I traded in every, uh, every trophy, what, you know, would, would it have, um, would it be able, what would I be able to get back because of the amount of time, um, I've heard in my family through a struggling marriage, if you could just treat us like you treat your, um, swimmers or you treat your athletes and you try to be the same person at home as you are in, 
on the pool deck and at school because you don't want to, you don't, it's too hard to be able to shift back and forth. But, um, I do fear, I do feel that, um, that success comes, there's, there's a balance in life that is, I, I think it's foolish to say that you can achieve it, but where you're going to get, um, success at the highest level, which I think we've, we've, um, experienced in a lot of ways, we, I, there's going to be another end of it. There's on the other end of the spectrum. And so unfortunately it does take a toll on, on other people or surrounding people and relationships. And so, um, that, that is very real. So I don't want to sit here and I know the numbers of people that will listen and, um, hear this to think that, um, that if you lose awareness of what's going on, that, um, success, that there's always two ends of it where there's success. If you become unaware, you are going to get failure. So, so, um, that managing of that is, um, is very tough and difficult. I've yet to master that. I surround myself with lots of mentors to try to, but it is, um, it, it is interesting. I try to learn from other people's mistakes if I can to avoid them myself, but I have been and experienced on my own level, um, a failure, which I think is, is I would much rather lose my first championship than had to go through a failure in a marriage and, and what that did with, um, with our kids and everything like that. But, uh, but we're moving on just like in anything is you got to own responsibility and then you've got to um, learn from it. And then you got to make sure I'm in a new relationship that, um, that, that doesn't ever happen again. So. That's great. I really appreciate and value um, you sharing that because it's one of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast, right? We hear all about the success stories. We hear all about the wins. We hear all about our, and share the greatest, best parts of our lives on, in the media and the news articles and on social media, but there's so much stuff going on behind the scenes that people don't know that, and I wanted to get to those real stories, right? We're real people at the end of the day where we love and we laugh and we hurt and we bleed and we suffer and we sacrifice and all those really meaningful ways. And there is, there's always, it always balances out somehow, right? Like nothing, no one is always a winner all the time and there is sacrifice that happens. So yeah, I really appreciate you being authentic and honest in that way because that's real life, right? No one, no one gets out of this world without having failed personally and professionally in whatever way. And I think part of the culture that we live in, and I think in Charlotte also, um, we're sort of encouraged to not talk about that stuff, right? Right. We want to put on the best shiny version of ourselves and of our schools and of our city, but at the end of the day, you know, we're all in it. We're all in it together. And I think that we'd have a much better, more meaningful connections to one another if we shared those downs when we share those ups as well. Well, I think we own, we owe it. It, it comes back to not everybody can hold a trophy and, um, and it, it is real life and it is, um, it, it hurts and you've got to draw from that pain to be able to, um, to move forward and, um, and, uh, in, again, if you're going to lead younger people and you're going to make an impact, then you've got to help them learn from your mistakes and, um, and you got to be vulnerable. And if you're not vulnerable, then you're in a sense, you're fake. Um, because, exactly. Um, exactly. So, yeah. Well, and I think also to be a coach, 
right? People, they want to see, they see you as a role model. They see you as someone that they can look up to. And it's, and you know, we've been teaching for a long enough time and coaching for a long enough time. People can tell when you're inauthentic. Yeah. So, you know, it's so important to bring your full self into the role because that's, you know, that's aspirational. That's in, inspiring and empowering. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming out. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for representing Queens in such an incredible way. Uh, and please know that I will love and admire you regardless of whether you win or lose. I <laughs> think you're you. a fantastic person. I'm so happy to know you. So thanks for thank coming you. out and sharing your story with us today. And good luck. I look forward to future guests as well. This is, uh, this is big. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast. And if you have questions or suggestions about upcoming guests, sponsorship opportunities, or just want to say hi, our email address is fun at funwithfailure.com.